Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Allison Isidore, and I'm a host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Mark Newman, a historian at the University of Edinburgh. Mark is the author of Desegregating Dixie, the Catholic Church in the South, and Desegregation, 1945 to 1992, published by University Press of Mississippi in 2018. Desegregating Dixie is the winner of the 2020 American Studies Network Book Prize from the European Association of American Studies. In this thoroughly researched book, Mark examines the Catholic Church in the American South during the 20th century taking a careful look at its relationship and involvement in the civil rights movement. This volume adds to the history of Catholic involvement in the freedom struggle, demonstrating how the church variously resisted, assisted, and adapted to racial tensions. Researching diocesan archives from Virginia to Texas, Mark illustrates complicated relationships that both white and black Catholics had with the rest of the South. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. I was, you know, wondering if you can just start the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Okay, as you mentioned, I'm at the University of Edinburgh, which I've taught at for nearly 18 years now. Uh, I did uh, my PhD in Mississippi, so if somebody's wondering where I'm from, I'm from England, but I teach in Scotland and I studied in America. So... Before we dive into desegregating Dixie, I was wondering if you can tell us, you know, how you came to this particular project. You know, what made you want to focus on the Catholic Church and desegregation in the American South? Well, the first book I wrote was actually on Southern Baptists and desegregation. And I thought I was kind of done with that. And I was researching uh, what became an next book on the Delta Ministry which is a National, Council of Proje- a National Council of Churches project in Mississippi. That was in the early 1960s, 1964. And I kept finding references to Catholicism when I was looking at that. I didn't know the Catholic Church in Mississippi, the Diocese of Natchez Jackson, acted as a conduit for federal money for a um, tra- job training program aimed at the poor, most of whom were African-American. And that surprised me. I wasn't expecting that in Mississippi. And as I went through this, I found more and more about what was happening in that state. So I thought, well, if things are happening there, they're surely going to be happening in other states as well. So I did an article about Mississippi specifically. And then I discovered through that about the National Catholic Conference for Interracial Justice. And when I discovered that, that opened up a whole new field to me I really didn't know about. And the archives are very thorough. Uh, one of the things, as I'm sure you know, with Catholicism is that uh, Catholics keep very good records. 
and that kind of really opened things up. There were a lot of letters going back and forth between the National Council and also a Southern Field Service. It started in 1961 to work with the different dioceses and with Catholic interracial councils. So then I found there was a whole network of Catholic interracial councils and Catholics involved in this area. And, of course, that made me look at the bishops too, to look at uh, the nature of having, how does a church that is universal have separate churches for African-Americans and whites and separate schools in much of the South? And also, to some extent, outside of the region as well, which is another kind of facet of it. So I really found a whole wealth to look at, and uh, I realised this is going to take some time to do, but uh, I thought it would be worthwhile to do it. Yeah, and I think, as I mentioned in you know describing your book, it really is a volume on Catholicism in the South, specifically the institution, right? And so I was wondering if you can talk about the breakdown of your book. You have it in two sections, right? The first five chapters are looking at, you know, the history, defense, and sociology of segregation in the South and its relationship with Catholicism. However, the latter half is examining the efforts to desegregate the South and the subsequent results of it. Why did you want to structure your book in this way? Yeah, it's interesting. You're quite right to say that it is institutional. That's really about half the book I saw as institutional, and the other half was more thematic. Uh, the reason for that was, first of all, there hadn't been an institutional study across the South. The only work had been done was really in the mid-1960s, and that was a national attempt. That was uh, the Segregated Covenant by William Osborne. So I realised that uh, I couldn't expect people to have a prior knowledge of this. I needed to explain the kind of nuts and bolts of how this segregation happened. What did the bishops say? How did they actually follow up on the pronouncements that they made? And that also meant look at the, the Catholic Church as a national body as well, because it also issued statements from the bishops occasionally on race every year on issues more generally. So I needed to look at the institution but in looking at that, I don't think it would really give any sense of the experience of, for many Catholics without breaking it down to themes. And that's why I have themes on Catholics who supported segregation and how they sought to justify their views. A chapter about progressives, that is those who challenged segregation and put forward an integrationist vision. And also uh, look at African-Americans, after all. Uh, they were ones who were being segregated, in effect, to find out, insofar as I could, about African-American perspectives. So to try and get a, a picture that was not solely about the institution or solely about particular individuals, I think I needed those two approaches and try and bring them together in the book. Yeah, and I, I think you do it really well in breaking down that there's – this institutional aspect, but there's also the personal level that's going on. And so I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the doctrine that has frequently comes up in the book because of its impact and relationship with racial equality in the U.S. Catholic Church, and that's the mystical body of Christ. Could you talk or explain to our listeners who don't know what this is why do these bishops, archbishops, priests, and nuns keep referring to this doctrine when discussing desegregation? It's an interesting coming together, I think, kind of zeitgeist, really, that these ideas were in train before the civil rights movement itself started to develop. 
the mystical body of Christ, in essence, is the idea that the Catholic Church is effectively Christ's body on earth. And so all those who are part of the Catholic Church are part of Christ's body. The Catholic Church, of course, wants all people to be Catholic, and therefore everybody else is potentially a member of that church. The way integrationists approach this was to say that there could be no divide in Christ's mystical body, that everybody is part of the church. Any injustice that's done to one member of the church is effectively done to Christ, as that is Christ's body. Integrationists adapted that quite readily to the idea that you cannot segregate people, there would not be segregation in heaven, there should not be segregation on earth, and there could not be segregation in Christ's body. Uh, the mystical uh, doctrine of Christ goes back to St. Paul. So if you look at St. Paul in Corinthians, he, he explains that idea and says, says effectively, although we have men, women, at this time he was writing slaves, bondsmen, as he puts it, everybody is part of the mystical body and there can be no boundaries within that body. So I think we can see quite readily why integrationists would apply that to the Catholic situation. And this was an idea that was endorsed by Pope Pius XI and by his successor, Pius XII, in 1943 in an encyclical, specifically entitled The Mystical Body. So that meant there was uh, the Vatican itself was putting its seal of approval on that idea and it began to be disseminated more through seminaries uh, to bishops and to priests being trained in those seminaries. And with the growth of Catholic interracial councils, they often uh, focus their attention on the mystical body. And what I found was quite often, whether we're talking about bishops or we're talking about clergy or about Catholic interracial councils, was that adherents of integration specifically cited the mystical body in justification. Alongside saying the Catholic Church, by its very nature, it should be universal and it should be a church that is for justice and charity and understanding and all of those things should create a church that has no boundaries or barriers within it based on race. Yeah, and when talking about integrationists using the mystical body, body of Christ doctrine. You also have some Catholics, specifically lay Catholics, using biblical justification in support of segregation. And I thought that was really interesting section because, you know, many books I've read on Catholicism or really the civil rights movement looks at segregationists, Protestant segregationists, using that justification for segregation. So it's interesting seeing a Catholic use this type of justification. And so could you talk a bit about that and what kind of pushback these people were getting from both inside or outside of the church? When I looked at the biblical segregationists, most of them simply say that God created separate races, therefore we should not infringe on that in any way. Not many of them specifically cite biblical passages. So if you compare them with some Baptists, where they quite readily would cite uh, biblical passages, and I think that's partly a reflection of the fact because some Baptists, the idea is they supposedly interpret the Bible for themselves. But of course, Catholicism, the doctrine itself, everything really arises from Rome as you know, the final kind of arbiter of that. However, there were Catholics who did try and cite biblical verses in support, and they vary quite a lot. There's not a great deal of consistency among them. They're very much uh, plowing their own, own uh, furrow, I think, with those. 
But to give one example, it comes up on several occasions was Acts 17.26, uh, the idea that God had created the, the earth and had separated people by their habitations. And they try to suggest that was some justification for segregation. Another aspect was to say that, and most examples I should say from the Old Testament, that one was from the New, but most are from the Old. And the Old Testament, they try and argue the Israelites were effectively segregated from other people, and therefore God favoured segregation. One extreme example of this was a laywoman called Una Galat in Louisiana, and she argued that the Israelites were white, and therefore that shows that God wanted whites to be segregated from other races, as he assumed other races were other tribes. She also claimed the Ten Commandments uh, was a justification for segregation. And as many times as I read her work, I still puzzled to quite understand how she got to that formulation. She claimed that uh, biblical scholars agreed with her, but she was never able to actually present any examples of anybody who actually did. There are other examples where the verses are cited, which, again, when you look at them, don't even remotely connect with the idea of race or nation. With Southern Baptists, they tend to interpret nation in the Bible as meaning race. But quite often with Catholics, they will cite verses that are vaguely connected with slavery, but actually have no uh, connection with segregation. There is one other example that was quite a common trope among Protestants and among some of the Catholics. That is the idea of the curse of Ham. Supposedly, uh, Noah had cursed uh, his son Ham with, with blackness, according to segregationists. Uh, of course, that this is to look at the biblical account, that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, I mean, the idea of blackness does not occur there at all. But this was kind of a popular trope. And what I found was those Catholics who tended to cite biblical verses quite often were themselves converts from Protestant denominations. And I suspect that's why they tended to lean to try and find verses more than many other Catholics who were uh, cradle Catholics. It's not an absolute, because there were cradle Catholics who also uh, made his arguments, but it does seem stronger among those who were converts. Yeah, and that was such an interesting aspect to see that breakdown there. But this leads me into you know my next question, where when talking about the institution of the church, I was wondering if you'd talk about how the Catholic response to segregation and desegregation in the South differed from the Catholic response to desegregation and segregation in the North. You know, what is the difference you saw when you compared them to other major denominations in the South and the rest of the nation? Well, it's a big question. And a lot depends where you choose to look. So one of the things I think we have to do with this is to consider different parts of the church, whether we're talking about Protestants or Catholics. So do we look at the statements that are made by denominational bodies if they meet as a region, some Baptist convention, if there are nationals such as the bishops, Catholic bishops meeting every year? Do we look at region, that's to say, if we're looking at Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, there will be conferences, state conferences, state assemblies. If we look at Catholics, of course, we'll be looking at the bishops. So do we look at the official uh, proclamations by different representatives of the church, whether at the national, regional or state or local level, or do we look more at the laity and the priests? And I attempt to do all of those, uh, which is rather ambitious, but I attempt to do this. 
And I think we can see some trends. First of all, denominations that are predominantly northern tend to speak out on race earlier those than denominations which are predominantly southern. And I'm talking, of course, here about denominations that are predominantly white or entirely white when I'm talking about this. Obviously, African-American denominations would be different. So we find predominantly white denominations, which are mostly northern, tend to speak out earlier and are more far-reaching in what they say. And this begins in the late 1940s into the 1950s. That doesn't mean that some southern-based denominations and bishops for Catholics don't speak out either. And we do find that happening. To break this down a little bit more, when we look at the South, if we take the South to be the old 11 Confederate states, and I entirely appreciate the definition of the South is open to discussion, and others may, may look at this differently. But if we take the 11 as a starting point, then there tends to be a difference between the Deep South and the Upper South, or if you, if you prefer, the Peripheral South. So the, the seven states outside the Deep South tend to be different. How are they different? Tends to be the case that the Peripheral South addresses race earlier and more far-reaching than the Deep South, which is often silent. And that's if we're looking at Protestants and Catholics, there tends to be that pattern. What brings things to the fore is really the Brown decision, the public school desegregation decision by the US Supreme Court in 1954. And that really forces religious denominations to take a stand. Their members are looking to them to do that, and they feel a, often feel a moral obligation to comment in some way. So we find that denominations that are predominantly northern tend to be more outspoken. They agree with desegregation as a principle that segregation is morally, religiously wrong. In the south, the peripheral south, we get some statements which, again, agree that segregation is, is wrong. We have some action by some Catholic bishops to actually act against segregation before Brown and increasingly after Brown. The Deep South tends to be more resistant. Resistance often takes the form of silence initially, uh, not commenting on Brown. But as we get the rise of massive resistance to public school desegregation in the South in the second half of the 1950s, then increasingly we find splits occur even more. So in the Deep South, the laity try to get their denominations or their bishops not to say anything. They sometimes try in places like Alabama and Mississippi for Sun Baptists to get their state organisations on board for segregation and, and get statements to that effect. But by and large, we can see that most denominations at whatever level, whether it's state or regional or national, will not back segregation at all. And more than anything, they will um, be against it. And the, the higher up the chain we go, the more likely they will say they are against it. And this is, of course, because they are concerned about many of their members they know support segregation. So they are, they are cautious quite often. The closer they are to the local and state level, the further away they are from that, they are more outspoken. If we look at the laity, things are a little bit different again. So I'd say a little bit about that, if I may. If we look, there's an opinion poll done 1956, uh, to look at um, Protestants, Catholics and Jews across America about the issue of segregation. Uh, if we looked at that poll from 1956, then it would seem, this is a poll of white people, that 
there is a real divide between North and South. That, for example, Southern Catholics and Protestants are more, say they are more, uh, they agree with the idea of desegregation uh, much more than you would find and overwhelmingly against in the South. So that on the surface appears clear cut. But when we actually look in practice at what happens on the ground, it becomes a different story, which is one reason that with opinion polls, sometimes people say what they think they should say, not necessarily what they would actually do when things come to their doorstep. And that's what we tend to find. So if we look at the example of the North, uh, by illustration of this, is there is a lot of resistance among white Catholics in cities such as Detroit, uh, Chicago, to desegregation of churches and schools. And it was quite often the case that there were separate Catholic churches and schools in the North as well as in the South. Not to the same extent, but they were there. And it's still a process of trying to break down that segregation as far as the bishops are concerned. So often there was great white lay resistance in the North to desegregation in practice, despite what the polls might tell us otherwise. And if I get an example of Archbishop Tulin from Mobile in Alabama, when he was criticising civil rights demonstrations, most famously the Selma demonstrations of 1965, he was surprised how many letters he got from white Catholics outside the South agreeing with him, and some of them being quite vociferous in their support for segregation. He himself didn't expect that. And it does present a more complicated picture. We can't simply talk about a north-south divide when we look at this. And uh, there's a great resistance among white Catholics in the north in segregation, as there often is on the ground among white southerners too. Right. And that kind of leads perfectly into my next question when talking about the church's response to desegregation in the secular front. So like you just mentioned, Archbishop Tulin in Montgomery and his response to the Selma march, right? And so could you talk about the church's response to the secular desegregation of the South and how that worked within the church discourse and hierarchy? If we consider before the Brown decision, first of all, then we find that segregation was state law across the South. So effectively, to be against segregation would be to be against the law. Uh, one of the things that uh, or values that informed many Catholic leaders, bishops, was adherence to law and order, to democracy, and to public education. Before the Brown decision, all of those things pointed towards a segregated system that was lawful. What Brown does, of course, is to say that's public school segregation is unconstitutional. Therefore, the weight of federal law begins to bear down on segregation. Give an example of that. So Bishop Adrian, who was a bishop of Nashville, which covered Tennessee, when Brown was issued, he said, well, that's the law of the land. We have to obey the law. Now, he hadn't spoken out against segregation before. So that starts to put people on the spot. And that becomes more apparent when we get to massive resistance, when there is you know, attempts to prevent school desegregation, public school desegregation, most famously perhaps be the Little Rock incident of 1957. So maybe I'll use that as an example here. So with Little Rock, effectively the governor of Forbes blocked desegregation of the schools and President Eisenhower federalised the National Guard and uh, put in the army to ensure that public school desegregation of Central uh, High School went ahead. 
the bishops, when they were meeting that year, had a resolution put forward to them by John Cronin, who was a Sulpician father, who is part of the National Catholic Welfare Conference. And Cronin's resolution was a condemnation of segregation as religiously wrong and morally wrong. He tried to get the bishops to adopt that resolution, and most of them did not want to address the issue. So that resolution was not put forward and nothing happened. In Little Rock itself, religious leaders, white religious leaders, came together to sponsor a day of prayer for Little Rock and for reconciliation. Effectively, they wanted law and order, which meant de facto supporting desegregation because that was the law. A year later, Cronin brought back his resolution and this time the Catholic bishops adopted the resolution with very little dissent. I think they'd realised at this point they, they had to speak out as a body and it was always easier to speak out as a body than to speak out as an individual bishop. So it wasn't until 1958 that the Catholic Church, if we look at the bishops as a collective body, spoke out against segregation, even though individual bishops had done so. Probably the two examples that come to mind for the South would be Archbishop Robert Lucy in San Antonio, who spoke out against segregation very early on. He became Archbishop in 1941 and spoke out uh, within months um, of being appointed and consistently condemned segregation. But he was still a bishop in the archdiocese with separate schools and churches for African-Americans. And we might also add uh, de facto for Mexican-Americans, Hispanic-Americans as well. Another example would be Bishop Walters in Raleigh in North Carolina, who began to desegregate parish societies in the late 1940s. He came to office in the mid-40s and very soon after started desegregate societies. Uh, Catholic societies. And it wasn't until the early 50s he started to consider the idea of churches and said churches should not be segregated, but there was not a great implementation. There was one example at Newton Grove where Walters in 1953 came to personally desegregate the church, which we might also talk about. But if I park that just a moment, it's to say that it wasn't until after Brown that Walters ordered the segregation of Catholic high schools. So really, Brown is something that forces, increasingly forces bishops to speak out or to consider what they're going to do with the schools themselves. If I summarise this briefly now, we start to get Catholic school desegregation in the peripheral south in some parts of it, none at all in the deep south until we get into the 1960s. And massive resistance has a great deal to do with that. We do find people such as Walters and Lucy condemn massive resistance very publicly. Most bishops do not. So they are really kind of outliers in this and they are exceptional, but they're important exceptions. Massive resistance led many Catholic bishops to be quiet, as it did many Protestant organisations and and representational bodies as well. It it goes across the board, I think. Yeah, and sticking with parochial schools or Catholic schools specifically for a minute, you hit on it there. Uh, Brown kind of forces the hand of a lot of these schools in the South to desegregate, but as you just mentioned also, Catholic schools were and Catholic churches were 
desegregating prior to Brown as well. And so what kind of tensions, you know, you've hit on it a little bit. There was some resistance from within the church, from the laity itself. But what kind of tensions did these churches and parochial schools face when they started to desegregate? Yeah, there's a few examples in late 1940s and early 1950s where synods or bishops say there should be no segregation in churches. The examples of this are San Antonio, Raleigh in North Carolina, where you also get this, perhaps surprisingly, in the Diocese of Lafayette, and also in Galveston, Houston. To follow on from an earlier point, it's one thing to say there should be no segregation in churches. It's something quite different to see that implemented. And what tends to happen is these proclamations are made, but there is no enforcement mechanism and there is no monitoring. So not a lot happens. Example of this is that uh, in uh, New Orleans in 1949, the Synod uh, says there should be no segregation in churches. It says it again in 1950. Archbishop Joseph Rummel of New Orleans says it himself in the early 1950s, says it again in the mid-1950s. The fact that they are saying it over and over again tells you that it's not happening. Uh, after all, they would need to keep saying something that was already in train. And there are some Catholic interracial groups who do try and test this. So in New Orleans, again, there's a group called the Commission on Human Rights, which is an interracial Catholic group. who say, well, we're going to go along to the churches as an interracial group and see how well they've been desegregated. And what they find sometimes find is that segregation signs have been removed from the churches, but the ushers still are segregating the parishioners. In Diocese of Lafayette, there was no change at all. And when I should um, explain, perhaps in case I didn't do this before, that the pattern tends to be in the South, that when there aren't many Catholics, there may be one Catholic church and white African-Americans would attend that church. But African-Americans, almost without exception, are then segregated within the church, either in back pews or in the on one side of the church. When there are more African-Americans and the church and religious orders are willing to fund them, then a, a African-American church will be set up separately. And once an African-American church is set up, then African-Americans who try to go to a white church invariably are told, go to your own church, meaning go to the, the black Catholic church. So quite often we don't necessarily have segregation signs, but people are directed by ushers either not to go to the church at all if it's a white church or to sit in the back or, or, or in side pews. When we look at schools, there are a few elements of incidents of schools being desegregated before Brown, not very many. And you're often talking about one or two African-Americans who are admitted to white schools. Uh, the examples of this in El Paso Martha, which is also in that diocese. Interestingly enough, in San Antonio, it's actually a Central Catholics high school that is run by these the Mararians, Society of St. Mary, who of their own volition decide to desegregate in 1951 and admit a first African-American student in 1952. When I looked at the yearbooks for that, church, uh, for that school, I, I, I realised straight away there were quite a lot of Hispanic children already at that school. So it's the African-Americans who are being segregated. There is, there is a class element to this within uh, the Hispanic community as well, which and division between those who are Texas-born Hispanics and those who are migrants from Mexico, immigrants from Mexico. 
which um, leads to some segregation of the the migrants rather than those who are long established in in that uh, locality. When we try and find response, um, the way in which, and invariably, you know, these are white pastors, they're white superintendents of Catholic schools, they tend to interpret desegregation as, abs- as a success if there's no incident. So if there's no public demonstration, if there's no obvious violence or conflict, but what that doesn't tell us is about the experience of African-Americans who went to desegregated schools. And that can be quite different. Example, I don't have examples from the early 1950s, unfortunately. I would say if, if anybody's listened to this who has any memories they wish to share who were actually African-Americans who did disagree schools, I would certainly love to hear from them because there's a lot more to be written and said about this. And I, I really would welcome any, any memories people might have of that. There have been some interviews done years after the event with some African Americans, these segregating schools tend to be from the nineteen fifty, the mid nineteen fifties onward, when there was a greater pattern of desegregation, as you might expect. And it's really a mixed bag. One consistent theme is that often African Americans are not invi- invited to social events, so proms are cancelled, dances are cancelled. There's this great Southern white fear among segregationist Southern whites of miscegenation that. Uh, if, if white African-Americans get together, they will then marry and have children and so forth. This is why the segregation is one of their great concerns. And so that's often there aren't social events. In some cases, there is outright hostility. Other times there is indifference. And sometimes there are interracial friendships as well. So there is a range of experience. And even people within the same school may ha- have a different experience. So the examples of African-American in a school in Memphis in 1964 who was shunned, he was, had uh, food thrown at him and things like this, quite abysmal things to happen. There are other cases in um, Nashville, so the same state, where reception was um, arranged from indifference but not to outright hostility and some degrees of friendship. So it really is a, a mixed picture. But there's a real difference between looking at what a superintendent of Catholic schools may say to what's happening on the ground. And quite often, uh, I'll give one more example of this. At a PTA meeting, this is in Houston, and African-American mothers were invited because their children were part of desegregated schools. And the superintendent said it was very good that the African-American parents didn't say anything. And uh, he, he said he thought they were comfortable. Whereas, of course, I think we'd read that very differently. That doesn't tell us anything about their perspective. And, of course, silence does not necessarily mean agreement or comfort. It can actually, of course, mean discomfort. And so this is why we really need to know more from African-Americans who experience this for themselves. We can't just rely on what uh, white superintendents of schools or white teachers tell us. Yeah, and I think that's such a great segue to my next question, right? The the history discourse about the civil rights movement has been primarily, when looking at religion's part in it, focused on Protestantism, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. But I don't often see a lot of books or articles written about Catholicism's involvement in the civil rights movement. And just like you said, we don't see a lot about 
African-American Catholics voices in these stories, these histories. But, you know, you're making the argument in the book that African-American Catholics were much more involved in the movement than previously thought. So as we start to wrap things up here, can you talk a bit about what you found when you started looking into that subject and how it counters this previous narrative? Yeah, I think if we say the civil rights movement, often comes to mind Martin Luther King, African-American ministers who were part of the civil rights movement. And of course, they were very important within it. But the civil rights movement was more than those who were in Protestant churches. Because the ministers had, African-American ministers who were Protestants had such a an impact, and we have the institutional kind of memory, we had the footage of Selma and so forth, we tend to associate Protestant church, African-American church with civil rights. The picture is far more complicated than that, even within the various African-American denominations. And because we have very few black Catholic clergy in the, 40, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, then we don't see them in the forefront of civil rights demonstrations and protests. But what we do find is that African-American Catholics are often very much involved in them. And I suppose one example comes to mind. I was interviewing Father Thomas Haddon, who's an African-American clergyman, Catholic clergyman in North Carolina. He was in New Bern in North Carolina. And he started to talk about his work with the NAACP and with African-Americans in his church were involved in civil rights demonstrations and protests there. So I asked him more about that because I said, you know, there's an image that African-American Catholics were not involved. And he immediately said to me, who told you that? Um, and I, I have to say, well, mostly sociologists told me that, but I want to hear what you can tell me because this has presented a whole other side to it. And we find this over and over again that because there weren't many black Catholic pastors, we don't uh, find them leading protests too often. We get people like Haddon who were involved. There are other uh, black clergy, Catholic clergy who were involved too. Some in Louisiana. There are more examples in North Carolina. I suspect there may be others. If we look at the laity, then Catholic organizations, African-American Catholic organizations, such as the Knights of um, Peter Claver, and also if we're looking at... Uh, the ladies of Peter Claver as well, it's an auxiliary of them. We don't find them leading demonstrations, protesting as specifically as Catholics, but we do find members of them who were involved in civil rights. So if we look at um, most obvious example is we look at Louisiana, Southern Louisiana famously is the most Catholic part of the South, then African-Americans are involved in civil rights, they are Catholic, but they're not involved as Catholics. So they're not sort of protesting as a particular Catholic group or particular Catholic organisation. But I did start to find, even in New Orleans, there's the St. Augustine High School, which was a black Catholic school. And that became an organising point for various initiatives in civil rights in the the early 1960s. Uh, Voter registration, uh, moves to get um, uh, outlaw... Uh, discrimination in housing and employment and so forth. So there's actually kind of coterie that were involved there. If we look more broadly, there are many Catholics who were involved in civil rights protests who didn't necessarily identify themselves as Catholics. So famously, there was a Greensboro sit-in of 1960, North Carolina, against segregated lunch counters, 
And there was four African-American men who were students who participated in that initial protest. One of them was Catholic, but we don't tend to hear about that. If we think about um, the Neshoba murders of 1964 in Mississippi, two white civil rights workers and one African-American civil rights worker were killed. The two whites were from outside the state. James Cheney was from Mississippi and he was a Catholic, African-American Catholic. But again, we don't tend to hear that too much. And examples of even before the um, bus boycott in Montgomery in 1955, there were previous incidents of the buses before Rosa Parks was famously arrested and we had the mass protest. One of those um, who was involved in earlier incidents was Catholic, and that nearly led to a boycott at that point. So when we start to look at this in more detail, because we don't have Catholics necessarily as uh, grouped in Catholic organisations involved in civil rights, it doesn't mean that Catholics themselves were not involved or were necessarily less involved. Often they're very involved, and we find this again and again. I'll close with one final example. Uh, Diane Nash, who was part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was Catholic. But we don't tend to hear about that uh, when people write about Diane Nash's importance in civil rights. Well, it looks like we have time for one last question before we run out of time. So I just wanted to ask, you know, what projects are you currently working on? Are there any lingering questions that remain from your work on desegregating Dixie that you plan on pursuing more or that you're working on? Or are you going in a new direction? Well, I went in a new direction. After writing the desegregating Dixie book, I wrote a, a history of black nationalism in America. And having done that, I've now gone back to looking at Catholics. I kind of took a break away and I've gone back to it again because there is so much to be to be written about this. And I, there's plenty more to be said. Uh, what I've been doing more recently is looking at particular dioceses because each experience is different. One diocese is not necessarily say, the same as another. And to be able to look at these stories in more detail, also to try and bring in more of the experience that people had, as well as uh, simply you know, what bishops may tell us or the most famous kind of examples. Well, um, thank you, Mark, for being on the show and talking with us. Okay, thank you very much. This has been New Books in Catholic Studies, a New Books Network podcast. <laughs>